Tea has a long tradition of being connected to the arts and literature and poetry. So there's a lot of poetic names as you navigate the world of tea and, and see these traditional names. Because, you know, tea was originally consumed by the people that farmed it and grew it. You know, it's yeah. it's really connected to the local culture in a, in a really deep way. That kind of reminds me of wine in a way where like, the different styles of wine that have been produced over millennia are yeah. so closely connected to the local food cultures. Um, so it's a really, really amazing uh, beverage. I'm Kenneth Thomas, and this is Coffee 101, your one-stop shop for everything you need to know about coffee. If you're looking for coffee's journey from seed to shelf, then go back to season one. It is chronological, so every episode is meant to build upon the previous episode. And then, from shelf to sip, including all those crazy brewing methods, look no further than season two. It's there for you, and all you have to do is listen. All right, I'm joined in the studio today again by Katie, and we are continuing through tea and our educational tea with Jeff Shampoo of Rishi Tea. Shampoo? Shampoo. Interesting. Is he French? <laughs> I don't think he's French. He told me where he's from, but I forgot. Dang. Yeah. Um, but it's probably somewhere in the recording. Um, but anyway, he's with Rishi Is Tea. Is he American? Yes. Oh, okay. He's American, yeah. And um, he's with Rishi Tea, and um, they do a fantastic job of selecting and, um, you know, getting to the public some yeah. really cool teas. I feel like there aren't as many tea companies out there as Compared there are coffee, coffee companies. Yeah. Like, it's definitely right. like a 1 to 20 ratio. You thinking about like um, just different roasters or coffee shops versus? I guess you're thinking about versus tea shops or what? No, like tea producers versus coffee producers. Mm. Now in the world, well, I guess there's, there's like lot. it's really big in like the Middle East, right? Tea. Yes, and in Europe, and yeah. Oh, and I didn't think about that. Americans yeah. just don't really drink tea that much. This is true. <laughs> I always see, like, videos about, like, people making fun of how the British drink so much tea all the time. Yeah. And it's really funny. Yeah. Well, they're starting to drink a lot more coffee now, too. But, yes, uh, if you look at the world, um, tea and coffee are both up there as far as, like, the dominant drinks. Um, so, yes. So, this is a very timely and needed uh, set of episodes yeah. to just kind of give us some baseline uh, on our sister drink, tea, or brother drink. I brother. don't know. Brother drink. So today we'll be talking about pu'er and <laughs> oolong uh-huh. and black. And the one I've never tasted before is pu'er. Is pu'er. I figured. But I'm, I'm pretty fascinated after uh, talking with Jeff about this. That doesn't sound like it would be like herbally. Well, rather than I don't want to give any of it away, but I'll give a little bit of it away. It's like green tea, but it's a little different. It's actually a lot different. And it tastes if in my understanding from Jeff is that it would taste more like say black tea, but I huh. could have that wrong. But he explains it all. It in sounds the like a smoother tea. Anyway, sorry. Mm, I don't know if it's a smoother tea. It, it sounds It's good. one that kind of it might punch you in the face like a black tea. We'll see. <laughs> yes, we will. All right, let's jump to the episode with Jeff, who is the president of Rishi Tea. Rishi. All right, Jeff, you are a trooper because you somehow are crazy enough to allow me to get you on three weeks in a row to finish out our master class on tea. So are you ready? I'm ready. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. And what what kind of tea are you drinking today? I'm drinking a sun-dried Sheng Puar tea from Yunnan, China. It's my favorite style of tea ever. It's really rustic, 
lovely energy. I brew it strong too. Yeah. Um, it's kind of bittersweet and really, really gets me going. Okay, cool. I don't think I've ever had a, uh, do you say pu'er? What is that how yeah. you say it? Pu'er? Yeah, uh, I call it pu'er. Yeah. Pu'er. Okay. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever had it. Is it close to, would the taste be closer to like a black tea or is it even dramatically different than that? Or what would you say it's closest to? Well, it's, um, there's two main families of, of pu'er. The Shung family is closer to green tea, actually. Huh. And then the, the Shu pu'er, which is pile fermented, which we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah. That's, uh, it's almost like, I mean, it's got the color of coffee. It's like brown and it's really smooth. And, um, I guess you could say it's maybe closer to black tea, but it's, it's, it's a whole thing unto itself. Huh. Have you ever had a cascara? Yes. Okay. Like how would cascara compare? Because to me, cascara tastes like, uh, which for one of oneers who don't know, that's like the, the pulp and the skin that's dried from the actual coffee cherry that you make into a tea. And so for me, that kind of has like a um, like a raisin, tobacco, uh, dark cherry type of taste. Is it anywhere close to that? Yeah, and the Shupuar is, is darker, more opaque. Uh-huh. And deeper, it's more like a like a stout of, okay. of all. It's, it's like the stout of the tea world. I think I'd probably uh, like it. Yeah, yeah, I think you would. Well, I'm gonna have to try it sometime. But okay, let me back up and say, one hundred and oneers today, we've already gone through some of the basics of tea, and we went through white tea and green tea, including matcha, and so today. We're going to try to round our education out with oolong and pu'er, or pu'er, and black, and um, I don't know, whatever whatever uh, Jeff says that I'm missing. So we've done white and green, so I'm going to let you pick up from there, and uh, we'll keep talking about teas, and I'll remind everybody that all of these can come from the same tea tree or bush but just like in coffee when we talk about varieties or varietals some may shine better for different final products which is what jeff has alluded to um yes a a plant can can make a green and also a black tea depending on how they process the leaves but one may shine better for say a black um and so, which is kind of cool, uh, because before we came into this, I was thinking, you know, well, maybe it's it's actually different leaves. Um, I mean, like different bushes or plants that, that make the different, you know, black tea or green tea or white. But that's not necessarily the case. And that's, that's why we're here. We're here to learn. So, I'm going to let you jump in. We've done white and green. What else you got? Amazing. Well, we're we're going to pick it up with Pu'er tea, actually, is our next category. Okay. And um, then we'll we'll circle back to Oolong and, and Black tea to wrap it up. Pu'er tea um, is named after a place in Yunnan called Pu'er. And so it was cool. a trading outpost um, back in the, in the days of the ancient Silk Road that the tea was, was kind of transported and sold through Pu'er city as a major hub. And this kind of tea, you know, really caught, caught on in Tibet, in Mongolia, in the kind of um, remote provinces of, of China. And it was really sought after by the people living up there. Um, it has a natural kind of strength and, and kind of beneficial digestive effect and so it's enjoyed as a really robust and warming and kind of uh, digestion-supporting tea. And it's, it's thought that the people of Tibet, you know, in the steppe uh, region, you know, they, they rely on, on yak meat, yak dairy, cheese, milk, um, yak butter. They don't have a lot of vegetables 
um, growing up at that elevation. And so there's not a lot of fiber in the diet. So it's thought that um, people living in that part of the world really gravitated to the kind of digestion stimulating effects of PUR-T. And so we have this really amazing ancient trade route that was established between Tibet and Southeast Asia and Yunnan, where PUR-T originates. The tea would be traded up to Tibet or Mongolia and be sold in exchange for salt, horses, precious metals, and goods of that nature. And so it's one of the most ancient trade routes, and it was actually one of the most ancient taxed trade routes um, from the main you know, Chinese uh, government as well. So it's a incredible history um, of this tea being transported along the Silk Road. And I, I say I say transported because one of the key features of the original style of Puar tea is that the tea leaf was compressed. Mm. So you had a batch of sun-dried green tea that got compressed into a cake or a brick, or they have all these different forms of compressing a mass of the tea leaf into a into a single form. And the most common shape is is this uh I've got one right here. It's a it's like a disc. It's like a cake or a cool. disc. Yeah. And so seven of these would be wrapped in um in leaf and that's called a tong. And they'd be stacked on the backs of mules and horses and transported along the mountains and valleys of Yunnan up to this part of the of, of the world. And so the tea would be transforming uh, during that journey and exposure to the elements. You have this kind of reactivation of the enzymatic activity as you steam the mass of tea leaf and compress it into that cake form. And so poor tea is ageable, and it's sought after by tea connoisseurs across the world because you can collect the cakes and age them for decades. Wow. And the slowly transforms over time. And we have the, the kind of two main families of Puar tea. The original style is called Sheng or raw Puar tea. And that's the kind that was traded along the ancient Silk Road millennia ago. And then we have Shu or ripened Puar tea. And that's made in a totally different process where the sun-dried green tea is pile fermented it's actually made into a into a pile and moisture and heat and humidity are regulated so that there's a natural bacteriological fermentation of the tea leaf that occurs over the course of about 120 days and the sun-dried green tea transforms from this yellowish greenish color to brown through the course of pile fermenting and the tea makers will rotate the pile. If anyone's ever kept a compost pile, you you know how much heat can build yeah. up in the center from the bacteriological thermogenic process. And so that heat really builds up and the pile gets rotated so that the fermentation is done, you know, kind of even and throughout the mass of tea. Yeah. And so once that pile fermentation is done, the tea is simply dried and there you have Shu or ripened puar tea, which has this earthy, bittersweet, cocoa-like flavor profile, and and it's the opacity and the color of coffee. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Um, so it's so it would be cons- It's kind of like green tea, but then they like take it on these different crazy steps after that. Yes, it originates as a sun-dried green tea, uh-huh. and then from there it can go into sheng or shu, puar tea process. And the sun drying is a is a key step. So we talked about green tea on the last episode, and one of the final steps of the green tea process is to dry the leaf down to a to a suitable moisture level to make yeah. it stable for transport. And that's typically done in an oven which thoroughly dries the tea from the inside out. But sun-drying the tea, it kind of re-exposes the leaf to the natural elements, and it, it puts the leaf out into the UV energy from the sun. 
And that UV energy can reactivate the enzymes that cause the oxidation to occur. And so we've fired the tea earlier on, we've rolled it, but now we're sun drying it and we're kind of subtly reactivating the enzyme activity. And so it creates this like kind of living tea that can then be compressed into cakes or bricks for the Sheng Puar. And you can imagine the steam and that reactivated enzyme is coming together in that concentrated tea mass. That's going to give the tea cake a platform for low and slow oxidation to occur within the tea mass over the course of years or decades of aging. Yeah. And it's remarkable if you store the cake in a humid or warm environment, that aging is more rapid than storing the cake in a dry or cooler environment. So the way that you store it can really affect the way it transforms with age as well. Stick with us. I'm Kenneth Thomas, and this is Coffee 101. All right, 101ers, you're learning about tea. Yay, tea. And if you want to learn about coffee, then look no further than all of the previous episodes. We would love to just kind of nestle in and teach you a little bit about coffee as well. So go back and listen to those. And if you're looking for coffee, then look no further than Humble Coffee. You can go to humblecoffee.com or you can click on the link in the show notes. And they have all kinds of single origin coffees uh, with different roast levels. And you will surely find something that is right for you. If not, then they have a sampler. You can get a sampler. All right, let's get back to the show. I had always thought about, and I don't know, I guess this is just my assumption, was, you know, the color of, you know, the the tea itself, you know, made a difference as far as, um, like, I be, you know, I could look at it and I could say, okay, this is a green tea or, you know, whatever. But, you know, if you look at, some of this, you know, pu'er, pu'er tea, uh, that's technically a green tea, like it looks more like a darker black tea to me. So it throws out the window for me that, you know, that, that I can only rely on the color of the tea to make a difference. Yeah. It's amazing. Cause it's like, it originates as the sun-dried green tea, and then through these secondary you know, processing steps, you know, in the case of Sheng, it's just steaming and compression. In the case of Shu, it's that pile fermentation. It totally transforms the tea into something, into something new. And the Shu Puar technique was only developed in the 1970s. Wow, okay. And it really was developed in the agricultural universities of China to develop a kind of probiotic um, uh, for fermented tea. And so it's really enjoyed today, especially in Hong Kong or South, um, South China. It's enjoyed in Taiwan, places where like dim sum and kind of oily foods are, are part of the food culture. And the tannin structure of shupuar is such that if you eat some oily food and then have the, the shupuar, it kind of, it kind of, uh, cleanses the the oily food um, from your digestion and helps kind of neutralize the fat. Yeah, that's cool. So people who, I guess we can make a broad statement, say people who, who have some digestive issues, this might be a tea that they would appreciate. Absolutely. I, I actually start every every day, my morning, first cup of tea in the morning, is typically shu puar. Uh-huh. Um, and I do that because it's a warming tea. Yeah. So in Chinese philosophy, we have yin and yang. We have cooling and warming energies in the universe and even in food products. And, you know, green tea, even the sheng puar, is considered more cooling in its energy. Yeah. But shu puar is considered more warming. And so it's a good way to kind of warm up the digestion um in the morning that's cool um you know the little packed um like what you don't call it a pellet what what do you call the 
a cake. Cake, okay. Do you, I mean, if you had one of those, do you literally just like, like take a little chunk off or? Yeah. And is there any like rhyme or reason as to like the weights and, or like the ratio of that to water or you just take your little chunk off and put it in, you know, your water? How does that work? Yeah. In general, I eyeball most of my, of my tea dosages um, just over the years, you kind of get a feel for what six grams of tea feels like. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I'll optimize the, the dosage of the tea that I choose to the volume of the teapot or the brewing vessel that I might be using. I tend to use more traditional brewing vessels, which tend to be smaller earthenware right. or clay teapots. Um, but for the cafe service, we tend to recommend, um, our simple brew teapot, which is borosilicate glass, it has a filter built into the into the lid. It's kind of like a French press that isn't French and doesn't press. Yeah, um, but it's it's a really versatile teapot. It's about twelve ounces, and so we optimize all of our brewing recommendations around that that brewing volume. Um, and so, yeah, you can calibrate a serving of pour tea and just splinter off enough of the cake uh, for whichever method of service you're going to go for. Cool. Okay, so that is Pu'er. Pu'er. I have trouble with that. Is it Pu'er? (laughs) Pu'er? Yeah, in the traditional Mandarin pronunciation, um, we call it Pu'er. Pu'er. But I hear it most often as Pu'er in in the West. Okay, we're going to say Pu'er. Sweet. So that's Puar. So we yeah. last time last time we went through white and green and kind of finished up green with Puar. Um and we had done matcha, which was also part of green in the last episode. So tell me about some of the other ones. I know we still have oolong and black and there may be some others out there. Yeah, yeah, we'll go to oolong tea from here. Um oolong tea is uh, another family of teas that is really sought after by oolong tea connoisseurs. Oolong teas um, are very artfully crafted. They're some of the most labor intensive to produce Uh in the processing stage. And the range of aromatic compounds that we can get out of oolong tea is really, really impressive. So just like all the families of tea, the leaf is, is harvested, it's withered, and in the case of oolong tea, there's typically a sun withering process that's done before the tea is brought into the factory walls. And so that sun withering um, helps to kind of charge up the enzymatic energy inside the leaf um, as a kind of first step before the leaf is brought into the factory for production. And so with oolong tea, one of the key dynamics that we're looking at is what's the degree of oxidation that we're going to be targeting. And oolong tea has one of the widest ranges of oxidation colors of all the families of tea. So there are greener oolongs that might have a greenish yellowish um, leaf color and infusion color. There are some oolong teas that are kind of in the middle that might have a, a nice, um, you know, a golden, orange uh, infusion color. And then there are oolong teas that are pushed to the far end of the oxidation spectrum and develop a nice ruby red color. Yeah, so with oolong teas, we have that entire range from green to yellow, orange to red ruby in the oxidation spectrum that we can target. And it's really just up to the, the tea maker and the style of oolong that they're you know desiring to produce. And so we have the leaf that's being harvested, sun sun withered, then brought in for further indoor withering. And it's basically gently tossing the tea leaf on traditionally on this like round woven rattan mat or disc. And a massive tea leaf was put on top of it and tossed ever so gently so that we're gently bruising the leaf and breaking the cell walls inside the leaf Um, which is making the leaf more soft and supple and causing some of that oxidation to begin to occur. And so when we're in the factory and we smell 
the tea leaf that is being you know processed with the with the yaoching it's amazing you smell a fistful of of the leaf and it's just like flowery iris and orchid aromas are filling the room it's really really beautiful yeah and so softening the leaf in that way sets us up for the next stage of the process which is really rolling and shaping the leaf and we can shape oolong either into a strip roll or into a ball rolled form mm. and so you'll see certain oolongs like phoenix dansong oolong tea or wu yi mountain oolong tends to be strip rolled and uh, other common oolong teas like the iron goddess of mercy um, or which has an seasons. awesome name yeah, awesome, totally, um, and a cool legend behind it. Um, or Four Seasons Spring, these are ball-rolled, and they're shaped into, like, little little balls. And so that the shaping of the leaf isn't just for um, aesthetic. It also helps develop the flavor inside the leaf. And that, that rolling and the bruising of the cell walls stimulates oxidation to occur. Yeah. Okay, so we're shaping the leaf, and then we can decide, do we want it to be greener or in the middle of oxidation or redder? And if we want it to go redder, then we need to let the tea sit in a resting time that we call just oxidation. And that's where, okay, we bruised the leaf, we've stimulated the oxidation enzyme. We might put, put the leaf into a tray or a trough, maybe lightly cover it with a, a damp um, cloth and allow some of the, some, the moisture and the heat to build up inside the leaf mass. And that's when that enzyme can really work on transforming the tannins in the leaf. It might take three hours, six hours, eight hours of, of oxidation to reach a kind of target color profile that we're looking for. Mm. Once we get there, the tea is dried um, to you know, fire that enzyme and halt the oxidation process at a certain point. And then it's, um, it's rested. And finally, with oolong, we can apply a secondary baking or roasting to the leaf. And sometimes that might occur months after the original harvest. Mm. And it's kind of applied as a as a final aromatic development step. So just like if you pan parch walnuts mm -hmm. uh, on, a, on a hot pan, you can kind of raise the aroma of the nuts or, I mean, just like coffee, you know, roasting is really raising the aroma. That kind of secondary baking of oolong tea can help raise the aroma and provide a, a bit of Maillard caramelization. Cool. Okay. Before we leave oolong, I am curious, what's what's the story behind the Iron Goddess of Mercy? The Iron Goddess of Mercy um, is a tea that originated in the southern part of Fujian province, the town of An Anxi. And it, the legend is that there was a farmer um, living in this, in this small town, uh, and he was a very pious farmer and went to go tend to the local monastery and would sweep the floor and just generally take care of it, even though um, th the town was kind of small and there weren't that many people going to, to you know, practice, um, he kept it up. And the, the figure um, in, the, in the temple is this character Guanyin, which um, is a Buddhist character and no known as a bodhisattva, which is a, someone who attains enlightenment but decides to you know, stay here on this earth and teach the way of Buddhism to other people to learn how to attain enlightenment rather than escape the wheel of incarnation. And, and um, yeah, so this Bodhisattva Guanyin uh, is a celebrated figure in South Asian um, Buddhism traditions and was encountered by the Chinese who traveled to India and brought Buddhism back with them, bringing the tea plant yeah. along the way and typically planting tea seeds at Buddhist monasteries. It's a big factor for how tea spread throughout China over the centuries. Huh. There's this kind of 
historical connection to tea and Buddhism in that way. And so the, this farmer had a dream one day that, um, that the Bodhisattva Guanyin uh, visited him and said, you know, th- thank you for keeping up the temple. I've planted, you know, a, a tea plant behind the temple, you know, just for you to keep that has an amazing um, aroma and it's going to be, you know, enjoyed by all tea lovers around the world. So the next day he went to the temple and found a tea plant, you know, growing behind the temple and named it the Iron Goddess of Mercy or Tia Guan Yin yeah. um, in honor of that dream. And uh, the name has stuck to this day. That's crazy. Well, um, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I would just drink it just, you know, for the name. But to, yeah, totally. but to, to know the story, you know, behind it, I think is even even more cool. But, you know, yeah, stories in general you know, really make things in the world. So, yeah, it's, it's fun. Tea, tea has a long tradition of being connected to the arts and literature and poetry. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of poetic names as you navigate the world of tea and, and see these traditional names. Cause you know, tea was originally consumed by the people that farmed it and grew it. You know, it's, yeah, it's really connected to the local culture in a, in a really deep way that kind of reminds me of wine in a way where like you know, the different styles of wine that have been produced over millennia are yeah. so closely connected to the local food cultures. Um, so it's a really, really amazing uh, beverage. Well, tell me about, um, I guess, black tea, or is there any other besides that you'd want to hit up first? No, that's right on it. Just a final thought on oolong tea. One of the joys of oolong tea from a consumption perspective is that rolled and that shaped leaf. We typically take a serving of that leaf and we like to brew it multiple times. So I've got some brewing vessels here and I've taken some oolong tea and I can take that one serving of leaf and brew it six, seven, eight times using really hot water each time. And, you know, the, there's a relatively high concentration of leaf to the water volume. So it's a strong dosage, but we use a short infusion time so that we're getting this like kind of aromatic snapshot or expression over the course of each of those infusions. And so the ability for an oolong tea to be brewed multiple times, we call the patience of the tea. And it's one of the, the joys of enjoying oolong and that, that method of brewing tea um, is called a gong fu cha or kung fu tea, which means to do something with deliberation and patience and skill. Mm. And so um, oolong tea is best enjoyed in that kind of a method. So you can really s- go on a journey with it. And it might be maybe um, a little bit more uh, aromatically expressive in the beginning and then some sweetness blossoms in the middle and then it kind of settles into umami and the finish. I mean, each tea has its own journey to go on um, through the course of that brewing experience. That's cool. Um, I'm guessing if you did that, like the, you wouldn't have the same caffeine content each time, or would you? Right now, caffeine, you know, it comes out the most in those early infusions. Yeah. And then it kind of gradually dissipates from there as more and more of the caffeine has been pulled out from from the leaf but if somebody wanted to enjoy um we'll say the same coffee uh multiple different ways or just over and over through time then you would say of all the teas we've talked about or we'll talk about oolong is probably that deliberate or patient tea, is that what you'd say? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. There there are certain styles of black tea that we enjoy in a similar way, but oolong tea is really intentionally crafted by the tea makers to accentuate that aromatic kind of bouquet. And yeah, that's cool. Um, it's, it's really best enjoyed and teased out in that way. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, okay, tell me about black tea. Black tea. Black tea is known as Hong Cha or red tea in China. And so when we look at the 
the oxidation chart of the world of tea. We have this green to yellow to orange to red and finally to brown. And black tea as a, as a style of tea was originally developed in China. And um, it, it's referred to as Hongcha or red tea there because it's really oxidized into the kind of reddish spectrum of tea tannins that we call theorubogens. So would you and, say of, of all that we've talked about, is it probably the most oxidized? Yes, it's second only to the Shu Puar, that pile okay. fermented Puar. That that goes beyond red and goes to the brown family of tannins. Okay. But beyond that, um, black tea or red tea gets to that reddish family of tannins. And within the world of, of black tea, we might have some styles that might fall on the lighter end of that range and others that push it to the deeper reddish part of that range. That's kind of a stylistic choice depending on the style of, of the tea maker. And we also have this dynamic of the elevation of the tea gardens, the, the tea, tea gardens that are in lower elevation or warmer, more tropical climates. Those places are going to be really well suited for producing rich red cups that are more malty and full-bodied in character, whereas higher elevation tea gardens, we might choose to produce black teas that are a little bit lighter on the oxidation spectrum, but they might be more aromatic and less, they might be a bit more brisk um, and aromatic and less red. Um, So there's these different choices we can make depending on the producing region and so forth. Um, But Black tea begins just like the others. It's The leaf is harvested, it's withered, and then it's rolled. And that rolling is a more aggressive means of breaking the cell walls of the tea leaf. We talked in the oolong process of that yaoching, that, that tumbling or tossing of the tea leaf, which is a really gentle way to soften the leaf. Black tea or red tea, we get straight up and, and roll the tea leaf mass. Yeah. Traditionally, that was done by hand. Um, today, it's most often done through different kinds of equipment that might press a heavy weight down upon a T-mass that gets mechanically rolled against uh, a stainless steel plate that has these like grooves and ribs on the plate. And so that mass turns and gets rolled and bruised against the plate might take 20 minutes or 30 minutes to, you know, roll the tea mass. And during that time, you can see the color changing from greenish yellow withered leaf to this like sticky, wet, and orangish reddish leaf mass. So that, that bruising really activates the enzymatic oxidation activity inside the leaf very rapidly. The aroma you get when you pull pull the leaf off of the roller and smell that kind of wet leaf mass. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's like ripe, fruity, sometimes raspberry. Sometimes you get these like spicy notes of cinnamon or camphor coming out of the leaf mass. Yeah, it's really energizing. And um, after this rolling process, the leaf mass will be piled into troughs or trays um, and set aside for the process we call oxidation. And that accelerates the enzymatic uh, activity inside the leaf and really finishes ripening the tea in from that orangish red to the red spectrum of tannins. When it's done, and how do we decide when it's done? By the senses by smelling, by feeling the leaf. Um, The tea maker builds up an intuition and a sense over years of practice. So when it's done, the tea is dried in an oven. Sometimes it might take two rounds of drying um, to fully dry the tea to a suitable moisture level. Um, And that, that is how, you know, black tea or red tea is produced. Now there are, kind of two families of of black tea or red tea um in the kind of colonial post-colonial tea world you have 
different technologies like CTC, crushed tear curl, that might intentionally break the leaf into smaller and smaller particle sizes. That creates a very rapid oxidation, and it's used for these kind of more automated um, factories that have continuous flow and continuous production of the leaf, all the way from withering and harvest through oxidation and, and this crushing of the leaf to the final drying. That kind of production is typically reserved for tea bag manufacturing. Mm-hmm. That's a finer, everyone's seen a more finer cut black tea in a, in a paper tea bag. That's a very mechanized and uh, more commodified method of producing um, black tea. But the original method from China is this kind of artistic production of the, of the red tea through all of the processing steps that uh, we just went through. Cool. Um, you know, and thinking about black tea, thinking about all the other teas, you know, you have all, you have lots of teas. I feel like there are more black tea drinkers out there in the world than any other. Would you say, I mean, is that accurate or, or are there more green or? It's a complicated question. So, you know, tea is the second most consumed beverage in the world after water. Um, and traditionally, I would say, in, you know, in China and Japan, the green tea is the beverage of choice for consumers there. Yeah. What we've seen, however, in the last, you know, two decades is that the younger generations in East Asia are actually drinking more coffee. Or if they're drinking tea, they might be drinking more, you know, quote unquote, Western styles of tea, like Earl Grey or English breakfast. And so there's this really interesting, I think, cultural exchange happening, you know, now where here I am, uh, having grown up in the Midwest of of U.S., you know, savoring these very traditional styles of, of Chinese teas. And the, you know, consumers in East Asia are, you know, seeking, you know, Western style teas. So this, yeah, there's something funny. about the grass is always greener or yeah, on the other exchanges. side. Yeah. Well, and to, um, I guess, clarify or confirm English breakfast and Earl Grey are both black teas. Yes. Correct. Yes. Now, what is like for our one on out there, what is the difference in those two? Because those are two very, very popular, what I would call black teas. Absolutely. They're going to be found on virtually every tea menu. English breakfast is a pure black tea, and it's typically a blend of two or more origins of black tea that a tea brand like Rishi would create. And every every brand has their kind of signature breakfast profile. So you can make your breakfast tea a bit more brisk, or it could be a bit more on the mellow side. It's kind of up to the tea, the tea maker's choice. Um, but they tend to be very red, very robust, full-bodied, and they like to stand up to a little bit of milk, um, milk or sugar traditionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to maybe sometimes add a touch of honey to a, to a nice breakfast tea. Um, but you know, we, we've intentionally designed our English breakfast to also be perfectly smooth and suitable to enjoy straight up and on its own, but they tend to be gutsy, bold black teas. Earl Grey is a super cool black tea um, that's made with black tea that gets scented with the essential oil of the bergamot citrus. Yeah. And bergamot is a citrus fruit that grows in Calabria, Italy. Um, Very aromatic rind and essential oils in the zest of bergamot. The fruit itself is very, um, very sour, very bitter, and it's not really consumed as a fresh edible fruit. Um, However, the juice is used um, for little tonic shots in Italy, and we actually use the juice in a couple of our um, uh, uh, tea products as well. But the essential oil is used in perfumery, and it's um, it's used in to make Earl Grey tea. We basically scent the black tea um, with the first pressing of the bergamot citrus uh, comes out, out in in the winter time, and it's got this really interesting 
floral, almost lilac character to the to the essential oil. You'll also find Earl Grey's out there that are made with flavorings, uh-huh. which are ethanol-based extracts or um, other kinds of extracts that that are a little bit. We, we consider them to be inferior in the quality, just because the the real deal essential oil has all of that nuance of floral and citrus components, whereas the flavorings are a bit more on the nose with a kind of orangey kind of flavor. You know, um, with coffee, I, like what I usually say, especially for folks who like a lighter roasted coffee, if you see as a flavor note bergamot, like on anything coffee-wise, it's usually, like we usually reserve that for a good coffee. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like in the, yep. in the specialty world, like if you see that on, you know, something we'll say out of Ethiopia or whatever, then um, that that's always something that's favorable. Um, so, yeah, I think of English Breakfast and Earl Grey, my wife and I both probably like Earl Grey, I think a little better. But even I was thinking about, as you were talking about Pu'ar and about black uh, and tannins and oxidation and getting on, we'll say, kind of the back end of, of the oxidation and the tannins and stuff like that. Um, I mean, is it kind of like, I mean, can you liken it to like IPAs and in beer, because I mean, I like an IPA, and an IPA is is I hesitate to say the word bitter because I like an IPA, but like yep. you know, I tend to like those better than like a you know strawberry cream ale or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But that's just like my preference. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Um, I like to think of of bitterness bringing with it aromatics. Yeah. So like, yeah, yeah, hops are so, they are bitter, but they're aromatic too. And so like, if, if you can develop a palate to tolerate some of that bitterness, there's a, there's an aroma to appreciate in, in that. Right. And so it all comes down to personal taste. We have, so we have two breakfast teas. We have um, English breakfast and China breakfast. English breakfast is designed to be pretty traditional, brilliant red color. It's made from, these Asamica strain tea plants growing in northern Thailand that offer a really robust cup, malty, um, a bit brisk, and it's got a nice heft to it. It can definitely stand a little dash of cream or milk. Um, it's also, you know, totally awesome straight up. But our, our China breakfast tea is um, modeled after a traditional black tea of China called Dianhong or Yunnan red, which is classically very mellow. Mm. It has notes of raisin, caramel, red date, and it's much smoother and um, easier on the palate in terms of the astringency and bitterness compared to say English breakfast. So even within this world of like breakfast teas, we can offer that kind of range. Um, It all comes down to personal taste at the end of the day. Yeah. That's cool. Um, okay, and thinking about, I was thinking about with black tea, the only thing I can think that we haven't hit, and I'm sure there's others, but this would be one that people might be interested in, would be chai. Oh, yeah. So that that has a black tea base, right, or am I wrong? It does, yes. But it's yep. got other stuff in it. Yes. So t- yeah. so so what what is chai? Yeah, chai, awesome. Um there's actually a really, really cool map um, infographic that went that went viral a couple of years ago that shows the the etymology of the word chai and how it relates to tea. So in Chinese, the word for tea is cha, uh-huh. and so there's part of the world where um, that the growth and distribution of tea follow the linguistic pattern of cha. And so chai is one of those examples. So chai in Hindi simply means tea. Oh, so you would, okay, so actually not to interrupt you, but to interrupt you, because I remember, I, now that you say that, I remember somebody saying like, 
like it's it's redundant to say chai tea. Yes. It's like you're saying tea tea. It's right. It's okay. right. Chai chai means tea in Hindi and it's typically referred to as masala chai. So masala is like mixed spices. And so all of the amazing spices used in um, South Asian cuisine are kind of referred to as masala spices. So masala chai, mixed spice tea, is the kind of family of what we call chai. And this this linguistic pattern is really interesting. You have there's a dialect of Chinese in Fujian that referred to tea as te, and so some of the the global um, sales of, of tea from Fujian through the Dutch and through the English back in the in the 17 and 1800s uh, that that brought the word tea to the Western world, and so the countries that sourced tea via the ocean typically refer to tea as tea. Whereas the other countries like India that got, you know, tea um, through the diaspora out of China over land, they refer to it as ch- as chai or cha. And so you can see that all over the, the Mideast as well. But masala chai, mixed spices tea, is a very traditional um, and awesome way to enjoy tea. It's typically a, a black tea, and we like to use a nice, strong, robust black tea that's going to deliver a good, um, a good base of tannin for us to build off of. And then there's a whole array of spices that can be mixed with the tea: ginger, cardamom, cinnamon, cloves, black pepper, maybe allspice, maybe pink peppercorns. Um, there's all assorted spices that can be blended in with the tea. And the traditional way to to prepare masala chai is to make a really strong concentration, is typically by simmering on the stovetop, and bring it bring the tea and the spices to a to a simmer and make a nice rich concentration. Then to strain that um, and add steamed milk um, to the tea and spice mixture, and so you've got like equal parts you know, tea spice mix and steamed milk. Um, And then it can be sweetened to taste. And, you know, sweetness preferences vary based on the consumer. Um, And there's even, I think, a lot of consumers that are looking for low or no no sweetness in their beverages and, and food these days. But I will say a little bit of sweetness brings some harmony to a traditional masala chai. It helps to kind of energize the spices across the palate. Um, so, you know, I do recommend, even if you're a consumer with a preference for for low sweetness, you know, consider honey or consider, you know, alternate types of sweetness to really bring your chai to life. Yeah. No, I, I would agree. I think I like, yeah, a little bit of sweetness. Uh, and I do think, at least for me, it probably accentuates uh a lot of those spices that are in there. Um, but okay, let's, let's jump to like temperatures and times, brew times for the ones that we talked about today. So we talked about Puar and we talked about, uh, Oolong and Black. Did we talk about others? Was that it? Yeah. Chai too. It's, these ones are pretty easy. Um, these these styles of tea are best going to be enjoyed with water, you know, right off the boil. Okay. Um, the the nature of oxidizing these teas to the the deeper end of the spectrum um, makes them really well suitable to handle higher water temperatures for for the best extraction. So black tea, puar tea. Oolong tea, I'm typically brewing right off the boil. Oolong tea, there are some greener oolong teas where I'll I'll use a hot water temperature, but I might watch the infusion time Mm -hmm. and go for like a 30-second to one-minute infusion time so that I'm not over-extracting it. But I do still like the very hot water temperature right off the boil because it, it, it really reveals and expresses the aromatic profile of that tea in a beautiful way. Whereas if you go for a cooler water temperature, say on the oolong, 
you might be, I'd be looking for that aroma in the cup and I, yeah, I wouldn't quite find it all the way there. Mm. So yeah, these teas right off the boil, black teas infusion range, we're typically looking at three to five minutes. Um, if it's a really brisk tea, three minutes might suffice. Right. Um, but most black teas are going to really peak at about four or five minutes. Um, Puar tea is kind of similar to oolong in the sense that it's most typically enjoyed through that gong fu cha or kung fu tea method where we take a serving of leaf and we infuse it three, four, five, six times. And each infusion might only be 30 seconds or one minute in duration. Mm, that's cool. Um, okay. Well, one other thing I wanted to make sure that we hit before we wrap things up is kind of pros and cons of, you know, like a little tea satchel or like a tea bag versus like loose leaf. Like like where 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 are there differences or are there differences in those two kind of styles of presenting tea? Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Um, you know, loose leaf tea is what I, what I enjoy every day as, as a tea maniac. I, yeah. I love loose leaf tea because I can, you know, adjust the dosage to right. my liking, which for me means typically stronger than the average. Yeah. Um, but you know, you can really, really adjust the dosage to the size of the teapot or the, the brewing vessels. Um, and it's really well suitable for those multiple infusions that we talked about. And you know, the sachet is an awesome solution for um, when I'm traveling. I definitely take sachets with me. Um, it's it's you know a nice convenient package format. And you know Rishi's sachets are um, pyramid in shape, so we fit a you know a full serving of tea inside sachets. So they do produce a really rich cup um, and that that pyramid allows the room for the leaf mass inside to really expand and infuse fully yeah. compared to say a paper tea bag, which is flat in shape and doesn't offer as much space for, for the tea to expand. Um, and I love our sachets because the, the mesh is actually made from a, a plant-based and biodegradable material called PLA. Uh-huh. And so it's commercially biodegradable, plant-based, and totally free of like microplastics and and that kind of stuff. We've had it, you know, tested with a, a leading food science lab. Um, so, yeah, sachets. You know, we think of it as offering the loose leaf experience, but just with the convenience of, um, you know, that that bag format. Um, but for me, on the day-to-day basis, I'm enjoying loose leaf tea because of that kind of customizability of the experience. Cool. Um, okay. Well, I want to get to, uh, I want to ask you something about Rishi in a second, but before we segue to that, can you think of anything else like for like, we'll say T101, like that in these three episodes we haven't hit that you're like, we definitely need to hit this. Yeah. Yeah. Right on Kenneth. Um, I think caffeine is, oh, yeah. is the moment. I think about yeah, it. so we get asked all the time, you know, how much caffeine is in tea? How does it compare to a cup of coffee? And, you know, the, the answer is most servings of tea will have anywhere from 20 to 50 milligrams of caffeine that get brewed and yielded into the cup. Okay. And so that compares to co- coffee's what, 90 to 100? milligrams per cup something like that yeah so we would say like a like a six to eight ounce cup would would be considered what we call a cup of coffee and you can ballpark it at about 100 milligrams yeah all right so yeah tea on average is about a third to half that of a cup of coffee um however tea has some unique chemistry that um modulates the way that the caffeine behaves in our body so those tannins that are in tea that we've talked about, um, they form a covalent bond with the caffeine molecule in the brewed infusion. And so it takes some time for those bonds to break as we consume the beverage. And so you get this kind of slow release of the caffeine into the, into the system um, as that process unfolds. 
And then T also has this amino acid compound called L-theanine, which um, is found only in tea and I think like one other mushroom. And it provides this um, sense of mental clarity, focus, calmness. And so that that works in concert with this like slow release of the caffeine yeah. to just provide this nice gentle lift that's really sustained. Um, and so that's a bit of a different energy to tea compared to coffee. You know, so actually when I drink coffee, I love to drink tea with it because it helps to kind of smooth out huh. that nice lift and, and boost I get from, from the coffee. Huh. That's cool. Um, I guess I've never thought about that except I do. I will have like a dirty chai latte. Oh yeah. Sometimes. That's my favorite. So, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a little combo of coffee and tea. Well, cool. Well, listen, let me ask you. So, so, so we have learned, I'll say all the basics for tea, which is fantastic. Uh, and I learned a lot here. Um, I want to ask you with Rishi, I know, you know, like for example, here at um, Humble Coffee, which is sponsor of Coffee 101, um, they use or we use sparkling botanicals that Rishi has come up with, which I think are really hip and cool drinks that are health forward and botanical forward. Um, tell us a little bit about that side of Rishi before I let you go today. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Kenneth. Uh, the sparkling botanicals are super fun. We developed them um, actually in kegs in 2018 and 2019 and had a, a small pilot program of offering you know, th- these teas on tap. We, we were inspired by all the, the nitro coffee on tap that we saw developing around that time. And um, through further R&D, we really found like, gosh, ready to drink, packaging up beverages in cans is um, a cool way for us to get tea in front of, you know, younger consumers, just reach consumers at a different occasion or different part of their day. Um, So we wanted to create something that we would love to drink ourselves that have all the sophistication of the kind of, classic Rishi herbal tea blends that we make, um, but offer it in that convenience of a can. And so they're, they're super cool. They're made strictly with plants and botanicals, herbs and spices. Uh, some of them have tea as well and have a slight amount of caffeine from tea. Others are strictly herbal or botanical and they're made with, without added sugar. So they have maybe a little bit of natural, um, like yuzu juice um, or bergamot juice, for instance, to help bring the right acidity level for shelf preservation. And that might bring with it, you know, one or two grams of natural plant sugars that get yielded into the can, but there's no added sugars. And so you get this really cool, sophisticated craft beverage. Um, the colors are awesome too. So if you pour them out into a into a nice glass, you get this range of of colors. Um, and they're super fun. We, we just find that they provide a, an elevated take on ready to drink tea out there. And my personal favorite is the dandelion ginger. It's designed to be like a sugar-free ginger beer and it's, it packs a punch. It's got a really strong dose of ginger and a bit of, um, of red chili inside as well, huh. along with rosemary and uh, lemon. So it's like an awesome uh, sugar-free ginger beer. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I was going to ask you which one was your favorite. I was going to say my favorites, I would probably put it between the green tea tonic and the black lemon. Those are yeah. two that I really like. That black lemon is so good um, in the summertime, especially. I love yeah. it. It actually uses um, the same black tea that's in our English breakfast, uh-huh. loose leaf tea, and, uh, uh, and and dried lemon, and then also a blackened lemon. So there's a technique of blackening lemon that was used in ancient Persia, and um, it, it slowly dries the lemon to create this kind of caramelization of the, of the lemon peel during the drying process. And it just creates this nice, like, kind of sweet, uh, 
brightness to the lemon that works so well in that blend. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, listen, it was great, great, great having you on the last three episodes, and we learned. I, I don't. I, we ha, we didn't even honestly scratch the surface on tea, but we learned all the basics from the experts uh, with you and everybody at Rishi. So we appreciate you coming on, Jeff. It was my great pleasure, Kenneth. Thank you so much for, for the opportunity, and I love talking and tea and coffee with you. All right, take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, so now between these three episodes, we know everything, not everything we need to know. We, ne- we know a lot more than when we started as far as tea goes. Knowledge is power, man. It is, and these were, like I've had oolong, I've had black. Black is probably my favorite. Um, I haven't had I like pu'er. a good. I like a good Earl Grey. Yes. And, Delicious. Uh, yeah, I like an Earl Grey. I like an English breakfast. Um, yeah, but I like an oolong, too. And now I know, like, the little nuances as far as the differences and yeah. how they, um, we'll say, process the leaves and, and, you know, to make the different teas. Now so, you can impress all your British friends. And friends in general who drink tea. But especially your British friends. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, yeah, we will stereotype like the British. like a spot of tea? And we will say that, yes, they are tea drinkers. Would you like a spot of tea? <laughs> I don't know if I can get into an accent right now. No, you must. We must have tea time. Oi. No, that would be uh, Australian. I feel like that's a bit more Australian, mate. You're all pooed out. Yeah. All right, Coffee 101ers, that's all we have for you today. And as always, we want you to do a couple of things. Hit it, Katie. Like, comment, and subscribe. No. Try again. You can do all those things. Rate, comment, and subscribe to the podcast. Slash follow the podcast. And? Tell your friends. Yes. Please. And if you have questions. Please tell your friends. We're desperate. We're not desperate. I'm kidding. But if you, um, if you have questions then leave them in the review section or in the little comment section of the review yeah do that then we can we can find you and talk to you about that or at least talk about it on the podcast yep because we love answering questions or in real life yep all right we might just show up at your doorstep (laughs) go ahead all right until next time love y'all see ya this is kenneth Coffee 101. And Katie. Don't forget about me. Bye. And Katie. Bye.